Well, we're still in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Scripture reading that you have in your bulletin is much longer than the one I'll read. I'll begin there in about verse 27, Mark 11, 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or what gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know what you think, but sometimes I've heard people say they think Jesus is being just a little too cute by half, uh, just sort of throwing this little technique at the people. Now, the people that were inquiring were, as it says there at the beginning, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Now, Jesus is in the temple. This is in these last days before the crucifixion. He spends a lot of time in the temple teaching and uh, sitting there watching people put their money in the offering plate and, and uh, doing a lot of things, including, as we saw uh, previously, driving out the money changers and uh, a lot of things. In this instance, Jesus is just walking around. He's just observing. He's participating. I think Jesus loved the temple. I think he loved it since the first time he laid eyes on it as a boy of 12. I think he did, he could, they couldn't get him out of the temple the first time, and I don't think he wanted to ever leave it. There's just something about it. It just spoke to his heart. And of course, he knew the great truth that he himself was the real temple. And he knew that he was going to build a temple, the church, the bride of Christ. So he's enjoying his moment at the temple and he's approached by these people. Now, don't read over that too quickly. The chief priest are the family that runs the whole operation. This is Caiaphas and Annas. This is the the high priestly family. These are the chief priests. These are the ones that really uh, have all the control of so many things. These are the ones that are in league with Rome, with Caesar, and have kind of a loose truce whereby they govern according to Jewish law as much as they can, but then they have to be compliant with Roman law. That's a bad place for a church to be, especially when Caesar's law runs counter to God's law. But anyway, that's, their, that's the chief priest. The other group here that are, that are visiting with him are the scribes. The scribes are the Bible scholars, the lawyers they're called. They're experts in the law of Moses. Many of these were Pharisees. They were particularly good. They were like the Apostle Paul. They were trained at the feet of Gamaliel and other great scholars, and they knew the Word of God. And they were the ones that were kind of the experts. They were the ones that advised the king on where the Messiah might be born. These are the... the scribes, the writers, the readers, the students, the experts. 
And then the other group that's mentioned here is the elders. The elders are the leaders, the Sanhedrin, members of the Council of Seventy, which was like a Supreme Court, a Senate, and an executive committee all rolled into one. And you can see pretty much they have now a committee of the whole confronting Jesus. The reason Jesus gave them the answer he did was because this was not the first time he had been confronted on this. In fact, John the Baptist had been confronted on this exact same question, and he had given his answer. You can read all about it in John chapter 2 and a couple of other places in the Synoptic Gospels. John the Baptist had to deal with this issue of what kind of authority do you have to be doing what you were doing? Now, John had an authority. He was a priest. He was a descendant of the high priest, as a matter of fact, on his mother's side. And he was a rustic priest. Remember, dad, his father, Zacharias, was in the temple doing the incense ceremony when the angel appeared to him and said that Elizabeth was going to have a baby. So John had authority. He'd been ordained. Jesus hadn't. And then later on, we find in in Acts chapter 2 that the apostles themselves were brought before this same group of people and quizzed by the same group of people by what authority they were doing what they were doing in the temple when they were preaching there in the days of the early church. So this, this notion of their question being authority was something that was completely familiar to Jesus. And he had dealt with these people and answered this question before. So when he says on this occasion, right here not too long before his, his own death, he's just telling them we've been over this and you never answered the first question the first question was what did you think about John the Baptist he was the forerunner he was the one that said prepare the way of the Lord he was the one that acted as a great civil engineer you know making the high places low and the low places high and straightening out the curves to build a king's highway And now Jesus had come along the king's highway as the king himself. In fact, he had demonstrably showed this in his riding into Jerusalem on the little white mule. So they're going over old stuff here. This is not the first conversation along these lines. And in fact, this one is going to do only one thing. It's going to enrage This group of people, the chief priests, the elders, and others, is going to enrage them to the boiling point to where they are going to finally take Jesus and kill him. So the stakes are high. And Jesus makes his answer and doesn't deal with them anymore. He continues on to live out and to demonstrate the very authority that he possesses. But it's not a bad question for us to ask ourselves. And so that's kind of what I want to do this morning is give us a little bit of a sketch of what it looks like to understand what Jesus' authority is. The word that's used and translated authority says, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority to do them? It's authority Jesus has to act. It's the word exousia. And it simply means, uh, according to the Dictionary of, of, of uh, New Testament Theology, the ability to perform an action. The ability. And sometimes a word used alongside of it is the word we're familiar with, the word dunamis, which means power. The capability, the power to do something. 
But it goes beyond that. It's not just the ability or the power to perform an action, but it's the right to do it. The permission given by a true authority. It is a commission. It is a kind of a legal term. It's something that's conferred by a higher court, be it a governmental court or a, a court of uh, parental authority or uh, uh, economic authority, uh, an employer. It's to give someone permission or a right to do it. It's also functions in a position, in an authoritative position, that is an office holder or a bearer of a particular badge or commission to do something. That's the authority. In fact, we pointed out in our reading this morning the offices of prophet, priest, and king. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus fulfilled these offices. And what he did in his redemptive work, he did according to the Old Testament prescriptions and examples of these offices. Each of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, had an authority within itself. In fact, each one of these were ordained or anointed to these offices. Kings were anointed, prophets were anointed, and of course, priests were anointed. And they were put in place in these offices to do these actions. So Jesus is perfectly within uh, his, his rights. I like the way uh, uh, J.I. Packer sort of spells this out a little for, further in the, uh, the New Bible Dictionary. It is the rightful, listen to all these words, rightful, actual, and unimpeded power to act, to possess, to control, to use, to dispose of something or somebody. It's not just raw power. It's just not portends or even potentia, the Latin words for power. It is the actual authoritative, lawful power. And that was really the issue, wasn't it, with the people here when they asked him. They saw he could do what he did. He just, he just did it by fiat act. But what right do you have to do this? What makes you think you can do this and get away with it? Why are you doing this? It's the, uh, as um, Packer kind of turns the phrase, and I'll read this twice because the first time I read it, I thought, that sounds good. Then the second time I read it, I thought, what does that mean? <laughs> and then the third time I read it, it made all the sense in the world. Listen to how he describes uh, exousia. It is the rightfulness of power really held or the reality of power rightly possessed. In other words, you actually do it and you have the right to do it. Or you have the right to do it, and you actually do it. Sometimes you have the right to do something, you can't do it. You don't have the power. And, and the reverse is true. But this is the rightfulness of power really held or acted upon, and the reality of power rightly possessed. Now what are the sources of these? This is truly authorized power to act. Philo understands the, uh, this in normal Greek usage to be a power that is derived chiefly from God, divine authority. Or, and concomitant with it, it is power derived from a king or a sovereign. It is royal power. 
Well, I'd like to submit to you that Jesus had both. Divine power and royal power. In the case of divine power, he had the right to do these things because he was first and foremost the creator. He is the source. In creation, his divine authority is set forth. He has even more than the power of the potter over the clay because the potter didn't really make the clay. (laughs) But he still has enormous power over the clay. The Lord has the power of the potter over the clay because he made the clay. In fact, it was out of the clay that he made man. And so obviously, he has that created power, that divine power. He's the author of all creation. We see that all through the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Through whom God created the worlds. So there's divine authority. By him all things were created in Colossians. All things were made through him, John 1.1. He has ownership, authorship. Author means he's the generator of it. When you author a book, you're the one that brings it literally out of thin air or out of your imagination or from other sources. You, you create that product. And that's what the Lord does in creation. This is why he could say to the winds and the waves, be still. Because he had that power over his creation. This is why he could teach is because he was the one who held all truth. He was the embodiment of truth. The veracity of God was behind everything that Jesus taught. So Jesus had divine power for sure, but let's take a closer look at the power Jesus had in his kingship. That is, in his dominion. Jesus was the anointed, selected, ordained, commissioned Messiah. He was God in the flesh, as we know. I submit Jesus could have been king without being God. David was a king without being God. Jesus could have been the king, the king of Israel, by every rightful measure without being himself also divine. But he was more than just a human being. He was, as was pronounced on two occasions, by the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That means he was an obedient son, as opposed to an incorrigible son. He was more like Solomon than Absalom among David's sons. And on another occasion, the word came from the Lord, this is my beloved son, hear him. He is the source, the authority of truth. So Jesus was acting within his royal authority when he did the things that are laid out here in the temple in the story. He had every right to be doing what he was doing. He was the divine Son of God, the duly crowned King of Israel. He had the authority of that kingship. 
In fact, he says when he commissions his own disciples, all authority, and it's the same word used, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. So Jesus, without question, had the authority. That's why he could say to the underworld, to the demonic, to that which had been put under his feet, he could cast out demons and do everything in the world order because he had that divine, royal authority. Bear that in mind as we close here in just a minute about royal authority, but I'd like to mention a couple of other authorities that Jesus had. Jesus had redemptive authority. By that I mean he had the right and the authority to do what he did because he was the one that was sent to save. When someone is a rescuer, when someone is a savior, when someone is on a mission to snatch the burning brand from the fire, they're giving a little more authorization, a little more authority than they would normally have. And the obvious examples of that would be what we call today our first responders. A policeman has a little more authority than the average person walking around because he's there to protect life and property. He's there to provide security. So he has a little more authority to act in an extreme situation. The same may be said of a, of a fireman. A fireman can break down a wall, break down a building. A fireman can commandeer a vehicle. A fireman can take that big old truck and push your Lexus right out of the curb to get it away from the fire hydrant. They have the, they have the authority to do some things because of the extremity of the measures that they need to take to do what they need to get done. And Jesus had come to save us. And when a rescuer comes in, you don't quibble about what he might knock over the potted plant coming in the door. And that's exactly what Jesus had. He had redemptive authority. He could commandeer and do what he wanted to. That's why he could break traditions. He could bypass all of the niceties. He was not subjugated to the, to the traditions of men. He did not need to follow all the P's and Q's of the washing rituals. He didn't have to obey all of the man-made Sabbath taboos. He had come in as a redeemer, as a rescuer. And that's why he had the authority to bypass conventions and to do that which needed to be done in order to save us. He had that authority. That's why he could forgive sins. One of the things they were upset about is Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. Well, that's what the rescuer does. He comes in and makes it right and redeems and restores. The redeemer in redemptive authority also has already paid the price for whatever he's taking. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. And when the Lord comes to get you and to bring you to himself, he can use whatever means he needs to to accomplish that purpose. And you're not going to quibble. If a paramedic knocks a couple of buttons off your shirt, ripping your shirt open so he can apply what he needs to to get your heart beating again, you're not going to quibble over the small amount of damage that was done. Well, that's a crude kind of illustration, but that tells us what Jesus was all about. He had this authority as the Redeemer. And then 
Finally, I want to mention another kind of authority that he has. And this is, if you haven't listened to the sermon, it'd be a good time to wake up about now because I only have about an hour left uh, for preaching. And this is really what I wanted you to hear. Uh, it's not in Mark. I'm going to another gospel. I'm going to go to the gospel of John. I'm going to go to John chapter 5. Here Jesus is dealing with these same people on a much earlier occasion about something he's done. He's been, this time, instead of walking around the temple, he was walking around the swimming pool. Well, maybe it wasn't a swimming pool, but it was a, it was a uh, pool by the sheep gate there in Jerusalem, one of the gates called Bethesda. It was a place of healing. That's why we call it Bethesda Hospital these days, I guess. It was a place of healing. And uh, there were a lot of people there, blind and lame and paralyzed people. And uh, one person Jesus dealt with, and the final result was Jesus being the rescuer and redeemer that he is, he healed the man, told him to take up your bed and walk. And the Bible says in chapter 5 of uh, John, says, and Jesus said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing may happen. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. <laughs> Thanks, fellow. <laughs> that's, that's all they needed to hear. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. They were worried about their Sabbatarian strictures. And here's Jesus, apparently had violated one of them and had healed the man. But Jesus answered them and says, My Father is working until now I am working. This is the language of apprenticeship. Jesus is a, is a true son, truly come from His Father, and He's an apprentice and He's doing the works. Whatever His Father does, He does. He's following in His Father's footsteps. And God is a healing God. I am the God that heals, He told Moses. And Jesus is healing He's following his father. So the, so the question becomes, and then Jesus begins to have a, this dialogue with them and, and listen to this in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only that which he sees the father doing. And whatsoever the father does, that the son does likewise. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Do you hear that? The Son gives life to whom He will. We are saved not by the will of man or the will of flesh, but by the will of God is where our salvation comes from. God saves and gives life. So Jesus continues here. And I'm going to skip and read just a few selected verses because it's a tremendous narrative. It's one of those, you know how John has these long discourses that just really opened the door to so much of our teaching of Christ in New Testament doctrine, uh, Christian doctrine. And John just tells the whole weighted conversation. He's not as brief and abbreviated on some of these things as, say, Mark is, the Gospel of Mark. But listen, he says, The Father judges no one, but He gives all judgment to the Son. Here's that final Power, authority, judgment. 
By what authority do you do these things? Because I am your final, ultimate judge. That's why. The Father judges no one, but He gives all judgment to the Son, that He may honor the Son, that all may honor the Son. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. These are life issues. They're worried about the Sabbath. They're worried about the kosher laws. They're worried about all sorts of things. Jesus is worried about life. Eternal life. The, the stakes are life and death. Not niceties and conventions. Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Then Jesus continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's resurrection. That's regeneration. That's those of you who were dead in trespasses and in sin. He hath he quickened. He's made alive. This is what this is all about. God's work is to save us, to give us eternal life. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also, also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment. He's got divine authority, royal authority, redemptive authority, and now He has judgment authority. He has final judgment authority. He has the final say over every single solitary soul's eternal destiny. He has given him authority to execute judgment because, because he is the Son of Man. And he goes on and he says, My Father is just, and I'll just stop right here because this just keeps on going uh, in uh, chapter uh, Five of John in verse 30 and following. He goes all the way down and finally ends up with a pretty good discussion about Moses. Nobody was more important to these scribes, these chief priests, and these elders than Moses. And listen to what Jesus says. Search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. They're looking for eternal life. We saw a few weeks ago about a young man who said what must I do to inherit eternal life that's the that's the broad issue that's the broad concern that's the ultimate and the final concern you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life it is the it is they that bear witness about me and listen when he said to these people that were questioning him verse 40 yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Some of the saddest words, saddest words in the Bible. You refuse to come to me. And that's what they're doing. And that's what humanity does. And that's what we're doing until the Lord overcomes all of our resistance. And lovingly, with cords of love, soft cords of love, draws us to Himself. 
That's cords are little bridles that hold an animal. You put the bridle and softly and gently draw them. He continues to talk about Moses. There is one who accuses you. You've got one person that is your prosecutor concerning eternal life. You're looking at Moses and searching the Scriptures to see if you find eternal life. You're looking to find eternal life. And Moses, the very person that you are scholars, Moses accuses you. Moses is your prosecutor. Moses is the guy that has the evidence piled up against you in the divine court of eternal life or death. It says, Moses, there's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. But he said, if you were to believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? The inextricable connection between the Old Testament law of God and the very words of life from the lips of Jesus. It's the same bread of life. It's the same manna from heaven. It's the same stuff of eternal life. Once again, I'll refer to Packer. In a dictionary article, now this is not a sermon, this is not a youth rally, this is not a Bible conference. In the middle of a dictionary definition that Packer's spelling out, he says, the gospel is in fact the first instance a demand for assent to this estimate of Jesus' authority. In other words, the gospel is the first thing that demands an assent to the authority of Christ. And the questions arise, are you now living your life, every facet of it, in submission to the supreme authority of Christ? If not, why not? We think of Jeremiah as a weeping prophet. You ought to have heard Ezekiel. Why will you die, O Israel? There's no reason. Life has come. It's in Christ. Trust and believe in Him. Do not let yourself slip into that place to where you receive the condemnation from the highest authority in heaven and earth the name above every name, who says to you in the final assize, guilty, depart. There is a place prepared for you. It's a place of eternal isolation, darkness and torment. Why will you die, O Israel? What should you do? You should bow before Him. You should recognize His authority and bow before Him now. Today is the only day of salvation. Today.